Rita Price tells us an, an amazing story. In fact, it's, it's, it's a story about compassion. A lady named Jane Fisher watched anxiously as her 17-year-old daughter, Katie, was showing her lamb and selling her lamb at, at the county fair. She was going to sell the lamb at the county fair. If everything went well, Katie would not collapse like she did the day before when she was showing her lamb. You see, Katie was battling cancer. Katie was hoping that she could raise a little bit of extra money, some spending money by selling her. She didn't want to sell her lamb. She loved the little thing. She didn't want to sell it. But lamb was going for $2 a pound at the time, and she thought maybe she could make some extra money, just some extra spending money. Roger Wilson, the auctioneer, kind of stopped before he began bidding on the lamb. She's standing in the middle of the auditorium. He stopped and he said this, we sort of let folks know that Katie had a situation that wasn't too pleasant. That's really all he said. So they started bidding on the lamb. Went up and up and up. And the lamb sold for $11.50 a pound. But that's not all. As soon as the person who bought it for $11.50 for a pound turned it back in to be sold again, they couldn't believe it. It started a chain reaction. People were buying the lamb and turning it back in, buying the lamb, turning it back in, buying In fact, businesses got involved in it. And they were buying it and then turning it back in. And, they, and, and Katie's mom said the only one she remembered was the first one that she sold. The rest of the time, she was crying the whole time. She didn't remember all the other ones. But this chain reaction kept going. In fact, the crowd kept yelling, resell, resell, resell. And they kept putting the lamb back in there. It was sold 36 times that day. And Katie raised $16,000 to help her off, uh, offset some of her medical expenses. And she got to keep the lamb. That's compassion. They felt her pain in their heart and they were willing to do something about it. That's what we see here today in Luke chapter 7. We see verified by two compassionate healings, Jesus confirms that the great prophet has come. He shows us what it means to be a compassionate person. In these two accounts we have right here, remember, Luke orders his gospel. It's not like a Western biography where it's chronological. He orders his gospel. And he puts these two events that we're going to see here in chapter 7 together. As a matter of fact, none of the other gospel writers talk about this, wo this widow woman whom I'm going to introduce to you in just a second. So he puts these two events together to tell us something about the heart of Jesus, what he was all about, and what his mission was all about. So he puts these two together as he orders his gospel message. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 1. So open your Bible or turn on your device, whichever that may be. But I want you to be able to see that this is what the Word of God says. Verse number 1. After he had finished all his sayings, remember he had preached the sermon on the, on the plain, not the sermon on the mount, probably a different sermon. So the sermon on the plain, same elements as the sermon on the mount, but not the exact all of them. So after finishing this, we were told, finishing all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered, in, he entered Capernaum. So he goes back to Capernaum. Now a centurion, that's a soldier that has 100 people underneath him, you probably already know that. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So it wasn't just some random guy that washed his shoes or his sandals. This was a highly valued servant 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, so he heard the testimony about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. The centurion had compassion. He felt the servant's pain in his heart and he wanted to alleviate that, so he sends for Jesus. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded, they begged him with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, talking about the centurion. And he is the one who built us our synagogues. He, he either built it or he contributed to the building of it. But he was active in building the synagogue there. And Jesus went with them. And he was, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. So you've got a picture now. Jesus is coming towards him. Centurion's at home. Before Jesus gets there, he sends out friends. Not the elders, but friends. Saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now the Jews thought he was worthy, but he himself is claiming that he is not. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. In other words, just speak it and it were, it, it, you'll heal him. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he, he understands authority. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He marveled. It was amazing. was astounded. And turning to the crowd that followed him, there's a big crowd. He says to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well healed. So Jesus now finishes all of his sayings, goes back to Capernaum. By the way, after leaving Nazareth in chapter four, we have no record of him going back and living at Nazareth. He actually is living at Capernaum. Mark tells us in Mark chapter two, verse one. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So he's, I don't know exactly where he's living in Capernaum. I don't think he's at Peter's house, but somewhere in Capernaum he's living. So he's at home. All of the centurions in the New Testament, you know, remember, we have to, centurions are Roman soldiers. You can imagine how Rome was loved by the Jewish nation. Okay, thank you. No, they hated the, they hated the Romans. So this is a Jewish centurion, I'm excuse me, a Gentile centurion, Roman soldier. And all four times in the New Testament when centurions are mentioned, they're always mentioned in a positive light. I thought that was interesting. All four times in a positive light. So he's probably not attached to a Roman battalion because Rome didn't station anyone in Capernaum until about 44 AD, which is after the death of Christ. He's probably attached to King Herod. So he's under his jurisdiction somehow. He's probably attached to King Herod. But the thing that we need to understand is that this guy's a Gentile. The centurion was a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't of the nation of the Jews. He was a Gentile, a foreigner. In fact, won by the Romans. They hated Romans. This man stands there. Just his very presence irritated the Jews. Yet he was loved by them. Then we're told that he has some servant. It's not some random servant. As a matter of fact, this servant we're told is highly valued servant. It's an interesting word. It's used twice in 1 Peter referring to Jesus being precious is the word Peter uses. Precious. This servant was precious to his master. Not some random. Could have been his personal servant. Could have been. Nevertheless, he highly valued him. Not known in those days. Typically, servants weren't taken very good care of. He was highly valued by the centurion. 
Matthew tells us when he records this account that he wasn't just on the deathbed, he was paralyzed. In Matthew chapter 8, we read, Lord, my servant is laying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So he's at the point of death. He's paralyzed. He can't move. He's suffering terribly. The centurion loves his valued servant, has compassion on him, and sends for Jesus to help him. We are told in the text that the centurion heard about Jesus and then sent the elders to help. Now there's a step in between there. He heard about Jesus. He believed that Jesus was able to do what people were claiming he could do. Then he sent for Jesus to come. Isn't really that what faith is all about? We hear the word of God. We believe the word of God. And then we act on the word of God. It's all connected together. We don't really, we can't really say we believe if we're not acting on what, what we say we believe. All three of them were present. He believed the word about Jesus. He acted then upon it. He heard, he believed, and he acted. He felt his servant's pain. He just, and he couldn't do anything about it. There's not a thing he could do. I'm sure they called for physicians. It doesn't say in the text, but you know they had to have called for some sort of physician to come. The physicians could do nothing, nothing at all. This was the kind of man, the Jews said, that loves the nation of Israel, loves the nation of Israel. He's worthy. But I, I like what the guy says. The guy goes, no, you think I'm worthy? I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. I love his attitude. He puts himself in a great spot. He puts himself a place to be, to, to be, to be acted upon. In other words, when we're proud and haughty, and not humble in placing ourselves at the feet of Jesus. It's less likely that God is going to act on our behalf when we're haughty and not humble. He humbles himself before Jesus and God acts on his behalf. He puts himself in a very good position. See, he was concerned that Jesus, in coming to his house, would be ceremonially unclean. So he goes, don't even come into my house. I mean, I, I honor you enough that I don't want you to become unclean. I value you, Jesus, so just, just speak the word, and that's all that I need is just for you to say the word. That's it. Acts 10 tells us about this ceremonial unclean. And he said to them, you yourselves know, Peter's talking, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So Peter learns a valuable lesson here, but that was the idea of the Jews. You would not go to a Gentile's house. So he's honor, he honors Jesus and says, don't even come. Just, just speak a word and that's all that I need. Just speak a word. He placed himself in the right position, humbly at the feet of Jesus. None of the religious leaders of the day were doing that. They didn't even think they were sick. Remember Jesus said, if you're sick, a physician has come to help. But if you don't think you need a physician, then you don't need a physician. They didn't even think they needed a physician. They didn't even see themselves as being spiritually sick. They didn't even believe then we see, according to the text, the servant is healed at a distance. Now, that's an, it, it, it's nice to know that, but it's even more important when you think of it like this. Remember when we talked about the leper being, being healed? Jesus healed a leper. And the text tells us when he healed a leper, he touched the leper. People don't touch lepers. That's not what you do, especially in that day, them being unclean. You don't touch a leper. It would have been just as easy for Jesus 200 yards away to say to the leper, okay, be healed. He could have spoken it, but he touched him. He touched that leper. That makes it even more valuable, the action that Jesus did to heal that leper. He touched him. This servant is healed at a distance. Perfectly fine. Because see, it's faith 
Not national standing is the key to the kingdom Jesus inaugurated. It's not about belonging to the Jewish nation. It's about having faith in the Messiah, faith in the word of God. It's not about belonging to any particular group of people. In fact, there used to be a day in America that people would say in America, hey, I'm an American, I'm a Christian. They just make that association. I belong to this nation, I'm a Christian. Now, anymore, no one's saying that now. As a matter of fact, they're saying, I'm not a Christian today in America. So it doesn't mean what nation you belong to. It's faith that is important. F.B. Meyer said, unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith put God, puts God between us and our circumstances. That's exactly what this guy, this guy, in fact, Jesus said, I marvel at his faith. I marvel at this kind of faith. The centurion was a contrast to the unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews, his own nation should have accepted him. They wouldn't accept him. Here's a contrast. A Gentile, a hated Roman Gentile is believing the Messiah. His own nation didn't. See, Luke wants us to understand. Remember, Luke's a Gentile, right? Remember Luke's a Gentile writer? He's a Gentile. He's a physician. So it's probably why he likes all these, these healings. He's a physician, but he's a Gentile. He wants to remind his readers that God is for the Gentiles too, not just for the Jews. God is there for the nations, not just for the Jews. He wanted to include the nations all along. That was the role of Israel, was to present him to the nations so that the nations would come to him. Luke says, Gentiles are just as valuable to God as Jews. And for all of us who are Gentiles, we can say, amen. 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 But it was really interesting. When Matthew records this, he adds something to the end of this healing of the servant that says exactly what Luke is trying to say right here. Look at Matthew chapter eight with me. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Again, this is the healing of of the servant. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what we're saying is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, but those coming from the east and the west are the Gentiles. The Gentiles will come to table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons, those are the, those are the nation of Israel, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. Why? Because they did not believe. They did not believe that the Messiah had come. They had no faith. We thrown into outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's exactly what Matthew says, exactly what Luke is trying to tell us, that the Gentiles are included in God's redemptive plan in history. We are not left out. We are not left out. So this account reverses the expected role of the Jewish nation whose historic mission was to bring light to the Gentiles. In this case, it's a Gentile bringing light to the Jews. It's a reversed role. turned completely around. See, this, this centurion was an amazing guy. Jesus marveled at him. He was a man under authority and executed authority. So he was under Roman authority, but he himself was over 100 soldiers. So he, uh, he understood authority. This centurion understood authority. He knew what it was. He knew that it flowed down and all authority starts with God. Now, sadly to say, people in our nation do not understand that all authority begins with God and it flows down as he delegates it. He understood authority. He realized that he, that Jesus had the same kind of authority over this disease that Rome had over him or he had over his soldiers. He understood authority. He knew the power of the word. Speak one word and people act. 
So Jesus, speak one word. My servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at this. He marveled at this. This is the kind of faith that's worthy to be copied. He marveled at this faith. Oswald Chamber, that great devotional writer said, faith is unutterable trust in God, trust which never dreams that he will not stand by us. The central point of this whole thing is not the healing of the servant. That is not the central point of this whole story, but the faith of the centurion. That's the central point of this whole story right here. Not the healing. We get fixated on the healing and go, yay! It's not about that. Jesus marveled at his faith. There's two times in the New Testament that Jesus marveled at faith. Now catch this. Both of them were Gentiles. This man here and the Syrophoenician woman, both times they were Gentiles. He couldn't even find this kind of faith with Israel. But the Gentiles had this kind of faith with him. So not only is Jesus able to heal someone that's close to death at a distance, he is also able to raise the dead. Look with me now in verse number 11. Soon afterwards, some translations say the next day, but closely after this event, he went to a town called Nain or Nain. Either way, I'm not quite sure. It's probably Nain. Anyway, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So picture this, he's going with his disciples and a large crowd of people are going with him. So they're marching toward the city, about 25 miles away from Capernaum, a good day's journey. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Now we're told he's dead, not that he had just fainted. He's dead, he's being carried out. The only son of his mother, and she was a widow. These are important information for us here. Only son, and she's a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So two crowds converge upon each other. Crowds that are following Jesus and the crowds that are in this funeral procession all come together here at the city gate. You can imagine it was chaos. You ever seen an Eastern funeral, uh, the Arab funeral? It's really loud. There's wailing and beating on the chest. It gets chaotic. So you can imagine the event that's taking place right now. And when the Lord saw her, the widow, the text says he had compassion on her. He felt her pain in his heart and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. Now you can imagine they're kind of going, uh, what are you doing? And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And fear seized them all. Makes perfect sense. I'd be freaked out too. You know he's dead. It's a funeral possession, okay? He's going to be buried. Their terror, their fear, fear seized them all. And they glorify God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. Those are in brackets because there's a reason why that is. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So a large group of people following Jesus, a large group that are following the funeral procession. And imagine the scene, how chaotic it was with all of these people come. It was really loud. What do you do at a funeral? I mean, D.L. Moody had that question. He was asked as a young man, as a young preacher, hey, can you preach a funeral sermon? And he goes, yeah, sure, I can do that. So he opened up his Bible and he started going through all the events in the New Testament and the Gospels and, and he looked for, to find one of Christ's sermon, uh, funeral sermons. And he looked and he looked and he looked and he found out that 
There were no sermons that Christ preached at funerals. Christ came along and broke up every funeral that he came upon. <laughs> he didn't find one. See, the Jews will bury their dead on the same day that they die. So you can imagine how fresh this grief is. When we hold a funeral service, usually it's been days after the person has died, but still people are crying and weeping even then. So you can imagine how fresh this grief was to the family and to all those who knew this young man. So they're burying him on the same day. We know that because in Acts chapter 5, with Ananias and Sapphira, we read this. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. So the same day they died, the same day they buried. So the grief is fresh. No parent should have to bury their child, her only child, her only son. So Luke mentions that she's a widow. It's important. Luke mentions that she's a widow, which helps us understand how desperate she was not to be left in economic straits. Who's going to take care of her? She's a widow. It means her husband has died. She's already buried her husband. Now she has to bury her. Who's going to take care of her? There's no welfare state in Israel in those days. You needed a son or a daughter or their families to bring you into their home and to take care of you. She had no one. The desperate position she found herself in. Luke wants us to understand that. The, little, the widow would be without her only son, socially alone and without protection. And Jesus sees that. He knows. He knows what's going to come her way. And he has compassion on her. He feels her pain in his heart. And he knows what will be her plight. To have compassion. To take the time to stop a funeral possession and to do this great work. Compassion. Been defined as your pain in my heart. Or to be moved with one's pain, to, to, be, to have pity on, to have your heart go out to. He sees this desperate situation of this woman and his heart goes out to her. He feels her pain in his heart. Imagine you're in the middle of a funeral possession, grief, wailing, crying, and all of a sudden someone says to you, do not weep. It's kind of like telling a person that's all upset, hey, just calm down. You don't ever say that to a person. Just calm down. That, that just doesn't go well. Could you, that doesn't, see, doesn't that seem insensitive? To say, oh, don't weep. Well, of course you're going to weep. This is my child, my only child. No, don't weep. It just sounds super insensitive. G.M. Uh, Landis, in an old devotional calendar, wrote this. His compassion led the Lord to say to the widow of Nain, weep not. However well intended, the same words from loved ones and neighbors would mean but little to her, for they could not remove the cause of her tears. Imagine an infidel saying to the widow, weep not. How void of comfort would that be? How different when the Lord of life said, weep not, because he, would, he knew what he would do to remove her sorrow. Don't weep. I've got a plan for you. Don't cry. Don't go, I'm going to fix this. Interesting, there's no mention of anyone's faith in this text. No one stops and says, hey, that's a Jesus guy. He could do something. Hey, could you come over here and heal this guy? No mention of anyone's faith here. Jesus is acting because he's compassionate. No mention of anyone's faith. In fact, this is the first instance that Jesus heals, uh, raises the dead in the gospel of Luke. And, and Israel hasn't seen someone raised from the dead since Elisha, about 800 years earlier. So there's not been anyone raised from the dead for a long time in Israel. Now, someone's raised from the dead. This was a sign that the, that the Messiah had come. 
And in fact, the people said, a great prophet has a, a great prophet has a written well, who do you, who do you think that they were talking about? They were, they were talking about the prophet that Moses spoke about. Moses talked about, well, let me just read you the text. Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. So from among Israel, God's going to raise up a prophet that's like Moses, respected, spoke to God face to face, stuff like that. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. It was really important to pay attention to this great prophet because if you didn't pay attention to his words, then God's going to hold you accountable for not believing his words. It was super serious to pay attention to this prophet. In fact, it was a question that people had for John the Baptist. Are you this prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? And John the Baptist said, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not that great prophet. This great prophet is probably not who the people were thinking about. They probably were thinking about Elijah or Elisha, the prophets. And the reason why they were probably thinking about Elijah or Elisha, and most likely Elijah, the prophet, because if we go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, which we're not going to do today, but you can go back and read it later. It's a shorter chapter, but it's broken down into two sections. Elijah has been sent to a widow, a Gentile. In fact, if you remember chapter 4 of Luke, when Jesus preaches that sermon, and then afterwards he tells you the two illustrations of the widow being served, who was a Gentile, and Nahum being cleansed of his leprosy, who was a Gentile, and how mad that the people of Nazareth got. Okay? So he's probably thinking about this event with Elijah. Elijah goes, and if you remember the story, well, I'll quickly tell it. He goes, and he's asking her to provide some food for him. And she goes, I only have enough to provide for myself and my son. We're going to eat this, and then we're going to die. I mean, that's it. That's all they have. So Elijah goes, listen, God says to me, this is what you need to do. Make a cake for me first. And if you do that, then you will never run out of all the ingredients you need to make cakes as long as you need. So she does it. She gives him the cake. And sure enough, God kept his promise. God kept his promise. He provided all of the stuff that she needs to make cakes from then on. So that was a Gentile woman being ministered to Elijah. The last half of that chapter, her son dies. And Elijah raises him from the dead. Gentile woman, a widow who has her son raised from the dead. Interesting. Kind of like what Luke is saying here. Gentile and a widow having her son raised from the dead. But the key, I think, to all of this is at the end of chapter 17, we read this, verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth in truth. That's what Luke wants us to understand. That Jesus Christ has the word of God in his mouth and what he is speaking is true. Believe him. That's the message he wants. So he's focusing us back to Elijah and the widow and the healing of the widow's son and said, believe this Jesus. His, God's word is in his mouth. Everything he says is true. Not only has a prophet arisen, but God has visited his people. Remember I told you they're in brackets. Remember that God has visited his people. It's a thought that Israel had. They remember when God came to visit them prior to leaving Egypt, when God came to deliver them from Egypt, redemption. In fact, it was used in Exodus chapter four, verse 31. Well, let me back up. You probably have it all already up there. Visit has the idea to visit with friendly intent. You know, it's not one of those situations that the mother says to the child, you go to your bedroom and you wait. I'll be in there in a few minutes and we're going to talk about what you did. That's not friendly intent, okay? It's not like that. It's friendly intent to do good to somebody. 
And they remember that because back before the Exodus, the same phrase was used. Of course, this is Hebrew, not Greek, but the idea is the same. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, huh? He has their pain in his heart. He's seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. That's what I think is being tied back to here is this idea that God is coming to redeem his people. And not only that, all the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, God is coming back. God, that is Jesus, had truly visited his people. He had come because he saw the need of his people. He felt the pain of his people in his heart. Remember when Jesus, before he, before he feeds the 5,000, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible tells us he had compassion on them. He saw their great need and it moved him in heart to action and he provides food for them to eat. Compassion sees and it acts. Psalm 103 says this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is compassionate. We can never say he doesn't understand the pain that I'm going through. He understands the pain you're going through the emotional pain, the physical pain. He understands. He feels your pain in his heart. Your God loves you with an everlasting love. He knows exactly where you're at. He sees you. He has time for you. He acts on your behalf. He is a compassionate God. He wants us to be compassionate people too, to be like him, to be people that feel other people's pains in our heart. That's hard. It's hard. It's a whole lot easier to be indifferent to people's pains and just ignore them. We just let them go by in their life and they get to do their thing and we get to do our thing and I don't interact with them and I don't have to feel their pain in my heart. It's easier not to do that. But the Lord wants us to be compassionate people. He wants us to be like him that can feel other people's pains in our heart. In fact, he told us that in Colossians chapter three. He told believers, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassionate hearts like him who sees the need and is willing to act on that. He takes their pain into his heart and he acts. How can we do that? I mean, you and I are busy people. We have lives to live. I mean, we have families to take care of. We got work to go to. Or if we're retired, you have no time anyway because I'm told that once you retire, you have no time anyway. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not retired, but that's what they say. We're busy people. How can we be compassionate people? The very first thing that you and I need to do is slow down. Notice people. Slow down in life. I learned years ago, thankful of John Maxwell talking about leadership. Uh, I learned years ago, if someone comes into my office, I'm a, just to kind of let you know who I am, I'm a kind of person that has a list of what I'm going to do in my head when I wake up in the morning. My wife's shaking her head. She knows, ex I know exactly what I'm going to do day by day. I can tell you hour by hour exactly what I'm going to, that's how I operate, okay? But I learned when someone comes into my office, the very first thing that I do is I close my computer down. What I would like to do is say, could you come back at another time I'm studying right now? That's not, that's not compassion, okay? So, so, I close, so I've learned. But the very first thing we need to do is to, to, to slow down. To slow down. Begin noticing people around us. And that's the second thing is we need to actually start seeing people. We need to see them. 
You need to see them for who they are. People, you know, people are problems. Let's be honest. People are problems. They, they have a lot of problems. People, in fact, now, this is a joke, okay? We were told in Bible college that the ministry would be fun if it weren't for the people. <laughs> it's not true because you guys are great people, okay? But, 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 but we have to see them. We have to see them for who they are. We have to acknowledge them as being valuable. We talked about seeing people a couple of weeks ago, not just to see them with our eyes, but to value them, to take time to interact with them, to take time to get to know them. We've got to slow down and we've got to see people. Ron Hutchcraft wrote, if you let your heart get hard, you won't be able to feel someone else's pain. If you're too busy to stop for people, you will miss the divine assignments around you. Slow down, see people, and then once you see them, act. That's the last part. You have to act. Do what you can do that God has allowed you to do to help alleviate the pain that they are suffering right now as you take their pain into your heart and be compassionate. Compassion is an inward attitude that manifests itself in outward actions, always. Just like Jesus feeding the 5,000. He was, he was compassionate and he was moved to action. We feel their pain in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Luke ordering this like he did and putting these two things together to remind us not only do you have power over disease, yes, that is so very important. You, you have authority over disease. What we see here is a Gentile man exercising this faith that marveled your son, Father. He marveled at his faith. He believed what he heard and he acted. So I thank you, Father, for Luke ordering these two together and then talking about the raising of the dead, the, the widow's son and the compassion that Jesus had on him. And teaching us that this is the heart of, of you, your heart. This is the, the thing that we, we emulate, the thing that we follow is who you are. And so, Father, I pray for me and for all of us is that in life we just slow down and then we start seeing people. And then as you enable us, we act on their behalf to alleviate their pain in whatever way that we are allowed to do to help them in life. Oh Lord, let us be compassionate people in this world because we are far and few between. There are very few compassionate people in this world. Help us to be those kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.